Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. I'm your host, Emma Sandler. With me today is the founder and CEO of Pie Skincare, Sarah Brown, a UK-based clean skincare brand. Sarah, welcome to the show. Emma, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. So I think one of the things that impresses me most about Pi is that it, it is a clean skincare brand that has been around for 13, nearly 14 years. Can you tell me a bit about the clean beauty landscape when Pi first launched and how you would describe clean beauty now? Well, clean beauty as a term did not exist when I started Pi all those years ago. Um, uh, really, I was operating in a very, very small, quite niche organic category, um, which was pretty small. I, I will say that greenwashing was still a very big problem then uh, and is what prompted me to become a certified brand in those very, very early days. And, you know, we can talk more extensively about that later. But, um, yeah, it was, a, you know, I was operating this very, very small organic category. It's still quite small, but... Um, but absolutely a sustainable um, brand at that point and, and always have been. And I think um, organic certification brings um, just brings this level of sustainability that I think often people don't fully realise. And, you know, back then, sustainability wasn't really even a particularly, you know, talked about thing. Um, I don't think people particularly understood what that word meant. Arguably, many don't now. But you no, know, these terms, clean and sustainable, and I know they're they're not they're different, but they just they just weren't really in our vernacular. So I was yeah, I launched into this organic space. Um, got very annoyed with with um, what I would call the organic imposters of people claiming organic status and having no organic ingredients in their products at all. Um, and and then really clean came came along a lot lot later. Um, and it's a really interesting um, movement, really. So you mentioned greenwashing. Can you tell us a bit about what you're seeing and, and how that sort of informed Pi's own approach to the clean category? Well, I mean, back then, I think why I started this brand can help bring some quite important context because, you know, I did not come from the beauty industry at all. Um, I came you know, with the perspective of a very frustrated consumer, I have and had and still have a, a, a skin condition called chronic urticaria. So the brand really came out from my um, many, many frustrations trying to manage my condition and navigate solutions for it. So I was somebody who um, had tried many, many different things, you know, many um, pharmacy brands, uh, hypoallergenic brands, that's a made up term anyway, um, and eventually landed in the natural kind of space. So it was sort of at the end of a journey and that we see that a lot with our own, you know, consumers. Um, but I, yeah, I found myself um, really struggling to read ingredient lists, understand them, navigate the kind of claims or, or you know, mislabeling. And that's sort of how Pi was born. So I was somebody who wanted to understand and, and more than that, needed to understand what was in the bottle. And so that's what triggered my interest in natural and the therapeutic properties of plants. And from there, it took me into the organic farming space. And once you're there, it's it's just so amazing. You don't ever come out. Um, and and that's why I started because it was a started pipe. But it was also this point about absolutely substantiating claims. It's the thing I care. I cared very passionately about then. And I continue to care very passionately about now. You know, walk the talk. 
you know, if you're going to say or something, evidence it. And back then there was, you know, I was somebody that had decided natural might be the right solution for me with as somebody with hypersensitive skin. That's not to say that natural is always better for sensitive. It, it, it isn't necessarily. But I think, you know, as a consumer, you have the right to to get what you think you're getting. And, you know, for me, I often would buy natural organic products for myself to, to kind of calm my aggravated skin and not get what I thought I was getting. So that was sort of how it all began and, and sort of why I'm so passionate, <laughs> so passionate about this subject. Um, and, and as I say, back then, greenwashing was a thing, you know, fake organic claims was, was commonplace because, and I, it still amazes me how, how many people still don't realise this, we are unfortunately not regulated in the same way that food is in organic labelling. So if you go to the the shops to buy a litre of milk and it says organic on the label, it is independently certified by an organic farming standard. In beauty, you can go in to a shop and buy an organic product that says organic on the label. It might even be in the brand name. Usually a clue the product isn't organic, by the way. But you could go on and and pick that off the shelf and there'll be absolutely um, no guarantees it's organic. And it may actually have no organic ingredients in it at all. And to me, as an outsider to the industry, I just couldn't understand how that was possible or legal. And so that's how Pi was born. And that's why um, we've always been certified. You've gone the third party certification route as a way to bolster the brand's clean positioning. Out of curiosity, what are your thoughts on legislative action that actually defines terms like natural and clean for the beauty industry? I think you need it. I I think if you're... (laughs) My view now is that, that, you know, clean is not a term I like. And people are often, I find myself in this category. Of course I do because of the nature of the brand. Um, but do I, do I approve of the term? No, I don't. Um, for the simple reason that it's just so open to, well, A, in a, in a kind way, interpretation, but actually also abuse. And, you know, what, is, what does it mean? What does the term mean? You can have a brand over here saying we don't use these five ingredients and you might have another brand over here that says we don't use these five ingredients and they're different ingredients in each instance. Well, who's right? Who's better? Who's cleaner? Who's more sustainable or ethical or, or you know, it, w- what does it mean? Um, and it really has become this sort of self-referring standard for brands. And so... It's sort of, and it's not, you know, ultimately, we who are we here to service our customer and our consumer? And if that doesn't help them, we're not, you know, we've got to think about this. And so I think the only way to sort of have meaningful impact at a meaningful pace is to actually bring, you know, standards of, you know, operating practice here. And you either, you know, one way is to get retailers doing it. And I know there's some movement here, which is positive, but until they all have the same standard... And impose those standards when they when they buy in brands um, consistently. That's a good start, but really, it, it you know it, it legislation is where it's going to be best uh, controlled, I guess, in the same way that we've seen it work in food. Now, Pie notably went through a bit of a rebranding in 2020. Tell us a, a bit more about that and what that consisted of. Well. It was a huge undertaking. I mean, this wasn't, you know, a new logo <laughs> or, or it, you know, it, and it, you know, if you think back, you know, I started this business in a completely different world. You know, 13 years ago, 
Um, social wasn't really very developed, if at all. People didn't shop in the same way. Um, it was just a different. It was just a different universe in the beauty space. And so I think we we realised, you know, ten years in, we thought actually, you know, are we still, uh, you know, are we really clearly defining ourselves? And is it clear what we stand for? And we knew the answer was probably no. Um, so we we wanted to look at how we kind of made the brand not just look more contemporary and relevant, but actually really embody our values and communicate our values. Um, so it took a lot of thought. It took about two years, but it was really about how do we sit within this clean category and this big movement. And I should say, you know, clean isn't all bad. You know, there's, there's there's positive elements because it's exploded the natural category, but it's brought many many new entrants into the market. So we had to say, okay. This is even more important now that we stand up and say, you know, how we're different and be more distinctive. And that was what the rebrand exercise was about. And it was also about, okay, if we're going to do this and we're going to change our 24 SKUs into, you know, all of that packaging, this is our moment to really think about um, sustainability from a packaging point of view and take ourselves, you know, as far as we can go. Because, you know, 10 years ago, the, the options in sustainable packaging were quite small um so and and i'm really pleased to say even when we embarked on that process um of looking at packaging at rebrand stage even in the time we were working on that rebrand we could see changes happening so it was looking at pcr plastics and and you know bioplastics like sugarcane it was moving more to glass it was thinking it was thinking about everything really um how end of life how do we help our customer recycle all of those things. It was a really good opportunity to do. We were already doing pretty good things, but just to take it a step further, still masses to do. But it was it was it was, a, it was this sublime opportunity to do that. So there was lots of culminating factors and why we chose to rebrand. I would say, in retrospect, trying to do this in a, a year of a pandemic um, was foolhardy, <laughs> and uh, I think we're still we're still feeling the sort of the pain of that. But do we think the brand is in a much, much better place? Um, yes, I really do. What has the customer response been to that rebrand? I'm, I'm curious what is really resonating with them or what they're sort of asking and, and talking about with the brand now that might differ from before. Do you know what? It, I mean, it, it's sometimes quite hard to get into your, to the, to the, to the minds of your consumer. But I think what we're seeing is a few things. I think there's, there's a much better understanding of provenance of where the brand comes from and the fact that we make our own products. That was not at all apparent. If you picked up a pack on shelf or went on our website previously, that was not obvious. And we we bought in this, this sort of strap line of made by us, independently certified, goodness built in. And it was to really hammer that point of, we are a rare breed. We formulate our own products. We have three full-time cosmetic chemists on site. We have our own lab. We have our own factory. It is an extortionate way <laughs> to to um, uh, to run a business, really. When when you know there's there's plenty of outsourcing you can do here, um, but it it really is a, a commitment to the cause, and it was really that passion to create that made us really want to, to to continue doing that and have this kind of very very close connection to the product we were selling and complete control over the sourcing and storing of our ingredients and the processing of them. Um, it really is that level of due diligence delivers an, an extraordinary quality of product and preserves all those properties of those very, very expensive ingredients you're, you're buying in. So 
I think that was probably one of the kind of big outtakes was I think we communicated that much better and I think people got it and they loved this notion of creation and seeing the products come to life. Um, we've got more work to do, but I think that's probably one of them. I think the other was was we we took the we took the opportunity to look at product naming. And I think many of our retailers were very nervous about this um, and saying, what the hell are you doing? Changing your product names. Are you insane? But actually, we, we've got some absolute undiscovered gems in the range. And we just, because we make our products, every product has this unique story. And so it was really about um, wanting to, to tell each product's um, unique story. And, and the name is one way to do that. So it's about, you know, and the name could be about the hero ingredient. It could be the product's kind of raison d'etre. It, 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 but there's a lovely magic story behind each product name and each product. And it, it was about that really, um, I don't know, a bit of bringing a bit of magic, I guess. This is probably a good time to tell you that I actually use the rose hip oil um, oil and I did use the rose hip cleansing oh, oil, right. but unfortunately I knocked it off my <gasps> counter and it broke. Emma, we have to send you a new one. Oh my gosh, it was good. I liked it up until that final <laughs> coup de grace moment. <laughs> oh no, oh no. But you liked, yeah. So that's the rose hip cleansing oil was uh, was only sort of two years in the line, but it's now top top five. Um, and rose hip oil, of course, is our absolute cult product. Yes, I'm not surprised. Now, something you had mentioned with respect to making and manufacturing own products, that's another thing that's always impressed me about pies, that vertical integration of your own lab, manufacturing facility. How important has this strategy been for the overall growth of the brand? And, and what does growth look like for pie right now? So several questions in there. Um, the vertical integration piece, um, it, it is really unusual. Um, and, you know, it, it it goes back to what, what I was just saying about, you know, we want this control. We want complete control over the end, over those ingredients that we're sourcing so diligently. And also, don't forget, being grown so diligently because they're certified organic. Um, so so there's this element of control, but but also, um, and I mean, we do believe that delivers a unique quality, but actually I think it was a time like COVID that brought home to us how helpful it is to have some control over your supply chain. We don't have complete control because obviously we're dependent on still raw materials and packaging and all of those things, but being able to control at least the production process and being able to make when we need to make was so helpful and then you layer in a rebrand on top I think if we tried to do that um, with external suppliers external manufacturers I think it would have been a very sticky <laughs> process but it is you know having having that control um, you know in, in a global crisis um, yeah I think we it, it just reinforced why we do it. And before COVID, there was also Brexit, of course. No, after. Um, COVID, Brexit was after, after, yeah. It so, still continues. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the point. I think people I think people outside of the UK, you know, feel like Brexit's been like, a, been going on five years. It has. <laughs> and um, and actually, it's really interesting because, um, you know, I think it was a torrid year last year for a lot of businesses, not just in the beauty industry. It was just a turbulent time. Uncertainty is never good for any business. Um, 
and but we weathered it very well and I think skincare tended to you know better um so we came out you know showing um double digit growth and it was you know we felt you know it had been all hands to the pump and we'd worked extremely hard we've also we'd also got a rebrand out of the way so we were we were sort of feeling relieved um and pleased um and then came 2022 we were already you know had been pretty bruised and battered from the year prior but then Brexit hit this year and um it's it's been arguably so much harder for businesses in the UK because in in a matter of days we all of our distribution costs tripled in in overnight practically um and it was just the cost to move anything was just well it was just unsustainable and so many many brands in our sector and we could see were all shutting down their European D2C businesses temporarily while they figured out what on earth they were going to do um, and we tried different things but we almost had to sort of remodel parts of the business um, very very quickly so we um, because we distributed everything historically um, and we thought actually this is we just can't do this we can't and also you know we were trying to ship ship products to consumers in Australia I mean a should we be doing that anyway from a sustainability point of view uh, no um, but they might be taking a month or two months to get there or not getting there at all and us having to resend and, and that costing us a hundred pounds you know it was just out it was just sort of out of control so we yeah we had to sort of take some some, some decisions but we opened three distribution centers um, in very quick succession this year um, to just move all of that piece of complexity out of the business very quickly. So growth's been slower this year. We've still grown. Uh, the year's not out yet, pushing for the other the final two weeks. But um, yeah, we, we we will have grown this year, which we're pleased about. But 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 not quite at the at the um, level we had last year. But I think um, still um, in a Brexit year, not too bad. We'll be right back after this message. The last time you and I had connected in April of this year, in 2021, Pi had received $9 million yes. in outside funding. Tell us a little bit more about what was behind that decision and how it's helped the brand so far. Well, we always knew. I mean, I think in this, in the industry we're in now, I think if you're if you're coming into it, or even if you're a small, a relatively small player, um, it is very, very hard to grow without cash, without without significant amounts of cash and investment. Um, so we really, you know, we'd, we'd got rebrand done. We know that that really helped get an investment over the line. We know a lot of, we had a lot of interested parties and we know a lot of those parties were waiting to see what rebrand looked like before they um, put their hands in their pockets. Um, but I... Um, yeah, it's it was it's been it's really about us helping build out our senior management team and really, you know, focusing on our core three markets and really pushing for growth. Now we've got all the foundations in place, but we realise that you know not enough people know about Pi. We believe everyone deserves to have Pi in their lives, um, so it's just it was really to, to take us to the next stage. Um, so we're re- we were you know really delighted to get that money in and in in you know in, in, in a difficult year. You mentioned the three biggest markets. Which markets are those for Pi? So US, uh, France, and UK. Oh, interesting. France surprises me. I, I thought you were going to say Australia, actually. No, so actually France is our biggest market. 
which people, you know, bigger than our home market, which people don't always expect. But yeah, it's a very, very important market for us. Yeah, well, it's so chic, that's why. So chic. Um, actually, I remember many years ago launching into a into a fantastic business called Oh My Cream um, and arriving for the launch and thinking, well, this is going to be quite damp squib because nobody knows us here. And there were queues around the block and we we just were just staggered um, and... They, they, it's just wonderful, wonderful, you know, French consumers saying, yes, we call ourselves the paillettes. It was the sweetest thing. And they said, we're the paillettes. We love pie. Um, it was a lovely, lovely moment, actually. Um, so, yeah, France is a really key market. And, it's, and hence why, you know, Brexit's yeah, it's tough. It's been tough because it's, it's such a core cool market. Yes, of course. So tell me more about Pi Labs, your micro-batch program. I've been told it's going through a bit of a transformation right now. Well, I think we're only really starting to talk about it now, Emma, to be perfectly honest. I think it was it was an idea, um, and, and, and when I say idea, you know, quite a vague notion we'd had for a really, really long time. So we'd... Um, and it, but it wasn't a fully formulated idea, I think, but we, we just had in our heads... We have three amazing chemists, you know, between them, they've got about 45 years formulating experience across not just organic and natural, but, you know, outside contract formulation too. So an extraordinary talent in the business, great knowledge. We have our own lab, we have our own factory. And we just, we felt that we just weren't leveraging that properly and fully. We just thought we should be, you know, developing in a much more dynamic way than we are. So... Um, and I think historically product development was really us doing our organic interpretation of a product, you know, so there would be product, you know, it'd be, okay, well, this is, this is Pi's organic version of a serum or organic, and, but that's sort of where the, the level of innovation sort of stopped. I think we felt it sort of lacked ambition of, well, no, we should be showcasing to the world what organic formulation can look like now, you know, at this point, it's so advanced um and and so performance driven um and we thought well actually it shouldn't just be about our interpretation of the product it should be us leading the leading from the front and, and actually conceiving a lot of the product ideas or getting you know new ingredients to market first we just had this amazing opportunity and also partly to just push out this notion that organic somehow is a compromise and a bit rubbish and a bit you know we were like, it's just, you know, we've always believed it's it's capable of, you know, extraordinary performance, but we've had to, it's been a long road to persuade people. So it was just like, what, you know, what, how do we do this? And we sort of had this idea of this creating a, a, a almost a space, a mental space for our chemists to say, look, you can have a portion of your time where you don't have to formulate to any brief. You can just look at, look out look at what's out there and just, um, you know, listen to listen to our consumers. You know, what are they asking for? But, what, you know, what's emerging? What are the trends, emerging ingredients? And, and, you know, we've always got to meet the consumer need. It can't just be churning stuff out for the sake of it, but um, have some fun, really. And that was the idea. And then, and then what happened was COVID. <laughs> and we were staying, you know, we had to send all of our staff home. We we're looking at this pretty big building um thinking this is pretty depressing and what you know what do we do and we had three chemists twiddling their thumbs and and we this was very early March and we thought well here in the UK I don't know what 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 the situation was in the US but we knew here in the UK there was you couldn't get a sanitizer for love nor money 
And, and we said, okay, well, what does the world, you know, what does what do our local community even need right now? They need some sanitizers. So we just said, okay, well, we'll just start making one. And we did it in two weeks. Um, and we donated 24,000 units to our local community, you know, from food banks to shelters to old people's homes to schools. And um, and it was almost entirely donated, that product. And um, And the point of the story is it suddenly crystallised this, this notion into an idea and showed us you know, what we could do and how quickly we could move when their passion to create is there, you know, and this impetus. And it was just this idea of going back to that notion of how do we develop dynamically? Well, dynamically isn't just about, you know, dynamic in concept, but dynamic in pace too. And I think that's what gave gave labs this kind of proper flight. And it was from there we said, okay, and it was really this year we said, okay, well, we've done Acton Spirits, which was the name of this sanitizer because it was born in Acton, where our factory is. And um, we said, okay, what, well, what does lab, what does labs become now? It's a thing now. It's been born, whether we realised it or not, it's been born. And that was when we started to really sort of think about what it could be. And, and Concentrates was our kind of newest launch into it, um, which are effectively boosters. But they are, our, I guess, our, our big push into actives. Um, not an obvious space for, for a really sensitive skincare brand uh, or an organic brand, actually, for that matter. So organic and sensitive, it wasn't a, a, an obvious space. But we just knew that going back to that point of organic can perform, right, and as well as or better than a synthetic product, we want to prove it. So it was partly that. Um, but we also had just so many consumers saying to us and customers of ours saying, please, can you create a vitamin C that I can use? I have rosacea. Can you give me one that I can use? But I, I, I don't want it to be a compromised product. It's got to work, you know, and we, we've got a beautiful 20% vitamin C, which people are stunned by because it's pretty high, um, that has been independently patched tested on sensitive skin and is a brilliant, you know, brilliant booster and you just drop it into your existing products. So it was about taking this kind of pool of customers who really, really want to dip their toe in and maybe get sort of supercharge their products a bit more, but in a way that they felt comfortable and they felt in control. So it's this idea of concentrates that you just you just blend a few drops into your products. You don't have to go out and buy another whole range of products. Um, if you're in a happy place with your pie regime, you can just boost them. So that was the concept and the response has been just amazing but they're only d2c you can only buy them from us and that's the point of labs is that yeah you could they're only only on on our own d2c and i think for your chemists i'm not sure how they feel about it but there's an art to what they do and so i imagine pi labs allows for a space of creativity for them as well a hundred percent they absolutely love it (laughs) you know they they um yeah, I mean, it just allows them space to dream and, and try stuff out and, and, crucially, have complete license to fail. And and even, you know, I think when you launch a new product, you know, into global distribution, you know, it's a huge risk and it's a huge expense. And you can't you can't have a product that's not quite right or, you know, it's, you've got to sweat, sweat everything. And um, but the, the beauty of Pi Labs is that we put that we put out products and of course they're all fully tested and, and we're really confident that they're fantastic but we have to we get them to market quickly it's the packaging is quite basic it's very off the peg um, but it means we can do it quickly and and we just have we have this this freedom to fail and say you know if certain ones certain of the boosters don't work so well we will discontinue them 
And it also gives this consumer this idea of, okay, well, it might not be around forever. Um, but also this idea that they can also input. So we ask our you know, customers all the time, what do you want from us? You, know, vit- you inspired the vitamin C, so what do you want next? So with the idea is that this concentrates rent will just grow and grow and some will fall away and some will stay. But there's just this, not this, you know, we can take a really iterative approach to formulation. What is on your agenda for 2022? It seems like the brand has done a lot, accomplished quite a bit over the past one, two years. So I'm very curious what the next 12 months will look like for you. Um, I think we're curious too, Emma, because um, it's a really, really strange time still. It's a really strange market. I think we are, you know, looking at a completely kind of new business paradigm. Um, and that's really, I actually, that doesn't daunt me, that excites me because I think, um, it, and I was sort of thinking about, just thinking about this actually earlier this week. I always remember when the, when the pandemic first hit, we, there was a lot of discussion about get, get things getting back to normal. And the one thing we said to our team from the absolute outset is we can tell you we're not going back to normal. There, there is, you know, we are going to enter a new domain here and that that will bring, you know, opportunity and, but we're not going to go back to new ways of, old ways of working, sorry. And I think that's where we're seeing certain businesses struggle actually where trying to do the same things and expecting the same outcome um, doesn't work now because we just, you can't predict consumer behaviour. It's really hard. Um, you got, there's, there's just so much uncertainty and so, so much unpredictability things like performance marketing costs have you know gone up exponentially so you've got to be really sort of considered about what you're saying and how you're saying it in a way in a more than ever so next year really is about um I think just getting out there and telling our story more I think we I think post rebrand we had to do we had to launch that you know in a pandemic year uh, we then had Brexit. I think we, we were only just getting started, really. We feel like we have a, a really important brand, you know, and story to tell. Um, and we just need to, to amplify it. So it's it's not, it's not as, it's, and also from a market strategy point of view, we're not, no ambitions to to to, to really extend beyond those three core markets. There's, they're all big markets with huge potential. So, you know, quite a focused approach. Um, but, but being very, um, very data orientated in our in our approach. Yes, and I know that with or in addition to the lab and manufacturing facility, there's also a corporate office. So, what is the sort of situation now with work from home strategies and and all the other things that are considerations there? Well, I don't know. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I mean we've we were we had quite quite extended flexible working before COVID anyway. Um, I mean, not to the level that it is now, obviously. Um, uh, my personal view is that, that, that it's all about balance. Um, we, we, I think of people stuck at home for 18 months, often living in parents' houses, often having to work from their bedrooms because they don't have, you know, a space. It's not, you know, it's, it's not good for our mental health. It really, really isn't. And actually, we are social animals. We are supposed to be around each other. And, um, you know, we're a really creative business. It's hard to stay creative when no one's, when you're all working in isolation, you know. And, and I think that's what, what, you know, 
if you asked our team, I think they would all say that that's what they've missed. You know, and it is about a balance. I think, I think the positives of of work home working is is that you can just have a bit more balance, and that's great. So I think it's capturing both. I think it's that balance, and I think before Omicron came along, we were just encouraging people to try and meet twice a week. So it didn't have to be on site. So you know, it could be you know meeting near their homes or but just teams getting together. And trying and trying to come on site at least once a week, so that also they could be around other people. And actually, you know, we we brought in a fair new, um, fair few number of people, fair few new people, I should say, um, in the last eighteen months. You've never met each other, you know. So you know, it's so we had to sort of reconnect people, and it was starting to just be such a lovely thing. And you'd come into the office, and there would be this real vibrancy that you know we just long long forgotten really, and. Um, it was just really a really nice feeling. And I think we've got to get back to that. I think it's just this balance. Has um, the situation changed hiring practices at all or recruiting practices at all? Um, not not really. I, I guess we're just a bit more relaxed about where people are. So, you know, we've just hired a commercial director who's in Paris. Um, I don't know whether we would have done that two years ago, actually. Um, but she's on, you know, until recently, she was on site twice for two days a week. Um, but you know, France is a big market for us. She needs to be there, and it and it makes sense to have have her on the ground there too. So, um, has it changed changed the hiring policies um, dramatically? No, but I think there's probably more appetite for for people, you know, potentially more working from different markets. Anything for next year that you're particularly looking forward to? I I like to end these things on positive notes. All I'll say is we've got an incredible new product launching in February. And it is all about this sense of revival, um, revive, skin revival, um, emotional revival. It's what we all, it's all what we all need <laughs> after the last eighteen months. And I, and it's a very, it's a beautiful, beautiful product. Um, it's done. It's had the most extraordinary results in in. Uh, consumer trials high highest performing product we've ever had in consumer trials um i can't i just i want to tell you everything but i can't um i'm just i'm just sort of wetting your appetite here and, and slightly teasing you but um it is a beautiful product but it is all about this sense of reinvention there you go i'm gonna leave it there <laughs> Well, I am deeply intrigued, that is for sure. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure and thank you for your time. Emma, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Tune in next week for another episode. And please don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening.